in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. I am super excited to introduce to you Josh Williams. I'll brag about you a little bit. Uh, But I met Josh probably about a year and a half or two years ago. And because of geography and different jobs, having us in different zip codes, we haven't gotten to spend as much time together as I'd like. But every time we get together, I'm like, oh, man, I should have gone back in time and moved heaven and earth so that we could work together. Uh, So when we we were talking about doing this this month of uh, of visiting preachers, I knew that I wanted to reach out to him first. We're just so excited to have him in uh, just to be leading us and, and, and uh, yeah, teaching us in this way. Um, I know you're just, you're great. So I, I just want everyone to warmly welcome you. Why don't you give him a round of applause and he'll lead us. Emma, there we go. That's different. Um, sound like God's voice. Uh, just kidding. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably uh, heretical. I might get smited. Um, yeah, it's, it's really a privilege, I think, to be here. Um, like you said, my name is Josh Williams. I'm a church planning resident um, out of Christ Redeemer Church in Woodbury, Minnesota, and I'm hoping to plant a church in West St. Paul by spring of 2020 or 2021. Um, so, so that's what we're up to. We, we are on a journey to figure, uh, to figure that out and, and learn what that looks like. And um, so we're really looking forward to that. But I think before I start, I just got to say, um, this is always inaudible for me, but I just got to say, man, this right here, what you guys have is sweet. This is, this is authentic. <laughs> um, you have no projector. Um, you don't have a full band. Um, you, you just, it's just you, you guys and your voices. And this is kind of like the, the first century church. Um, so I just find this amazing that what you guys have here, I'm missing my buttons, what you guys have here is, uh, is really sweet. I mean, don't forever forget this moment. Um, it says in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that they devoted themselves to the scriptures, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, to, 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 to communing together. Like they did that and they didn't like have like what we have now in the 21st century. Like it was just voices. That's amazing. Um, it reminds me, it reminds me of what, it, what it's like. And I look forward to that. So, so thanks for inviting me. Um, it's really a privilege, I think, for me to speak on this topic, particularly um, racial reconciliation, um, because it's, it's been, a, I think, a topic that's been brewing in my heart ever since I became a believer, and I didn't even know it. Um, this story, this topic, this passion comes from my story, because I, I think I've had a unique experience as a black person. Um, according to some statistics, I've grown up like most black people. My mom was a single mom of five kids. Me being the youngest, there are three different fathers between me and my siblings. My dad left when I was seven. My father has had four marriages to this day. My mom was a single mom working two jobs to make ends meet. She never made more than 25 grand a year growing up. I had no idea how we had meat every day. It was amazing. My dad never paid child support. So I don't say that to say to, for you to feel sorry or to give me credibility. I just want to give you a picture quickly, really quick, of what my life was like a little bit. I don't know if you might have guessed this already, but I'm half Hispanic. I'm half black and half Hispanic. My father is black. My mom is Hispanic. And I grew up with siblings who were all Hispanic. I was the only black guy in, in the home, the half black guy at least. And everybody spoke Spanish, and so they could talk about me and me totally to be completely clueless. There were a few times where my mom would talk to me in Spanish and I would understand, but it's because I was in trouble and she was swearing at me. So it, after a while, I, I kind of figured it out. So I grew up in East Orlando. I was one of the few black kids in the school that I was going to at the time up to about fifth or sixth grade. But then after that, I became the majority. I went from having my best friend being a white 
kid to my best friends being black and Hispanic. It was really bizarre. All my friends, eventually, I found out, were in gangs. They, they either sold drugs or did drugs. They were either chasing after girls or just doing different things. All my friends were doing that kind of thing. And so I wanted to be just like them. I never grew up in the hardest hoods of Orlando, but there was, there was, there was enough danger where if you weren't careful, you would walk into danger. There was a little bit of margin that if you just hung around the right people, it was safe. And so why do I share that with you? Because I want to just be upfront and tell you that my experience, I don't represent what you would typically, what most people in America would typically call and consider most black people's experience. I never grew up in the hardest places. I've never seen one of my friends die right in front of me from a gun wound. I've never seen anyone overdose in front of me. I didn't have the hardest of life. But I was in this little mix of in-between world that it just seemed, it, it seemed like I was, I was apart, but I wasn't apart. So throughout middle school and high school, my mom, she always tried hindering me from finding my identity and being black. Just imagine that. You're a black guy, you're half black, and your mom is spending time trying to help you see that you're, 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 not, you're not black. I had to fight to dress to be like my black friends. I found identity with being black, it seems like. I wanted to talk like my friends. I wanted to be tough. I wanted to be hard, just like my friends who were in gangs. I thought that what I, what I wanted to be was black. I thought what it meant to be black was to be like my friends who were in gangs. But I never could be. I never could be. I wanted to have my hair braided, and my mom fought me tooth and nail over that. I wanted to have dreads, and my mom fought me tooth and nail over that. I wanted to sag my pants and wear big clothes and wear Jordans all the time, and my mom got me fubu. I don't know if you remember what that was. But my mom fought me tooth and nail for me not to find my identity in being black. And so I want you to know that I have an uncommon voice when it comes to this discussion. I have an uncommon voice when it comes to this discussion of race and reconciliation, because I think that's what we're here for. I think we're trying to figure out here, how as a church can we respond to systemic racism? How as a church can we insert ourselves into the conversation in a very helpful way that helps combat or defeat systemic racism? Am I right? I think we're trying to figure that out in this room. And so how do we help become a part of the solution to bring harmony and racial reconciliation? So for me, I've had an uncommon voice when when I come to you this morning to bring to the discussion, but I want to add to it. And so ever since I was young, my mom was telling me what I call a proto gospel. I grew up in a very nominal Christian home. My mom grew up Catholic. We kind of went to church on, on Easter, Christmas, and any random day my mom decided to choose. Very rarely would we go to church if we did. And if we did, it never had any weight on how, what we thought and what we, how we talked and how we acted. We went to church, and then right, off we, right after we left the parking lot, it had no weight on how we lived. And so the gospel had no impact in our thinking and living. But my mom, as weird as this was, as weird as she was, was always telling me something pretty gospel-ish. This is what she would say. Ever since I was in third grade, she would say, Josh, everybody's blood is red. Everybody's organs are the same on the inside. So don't don't let anybody make you feel like you are different than them because you're black. So on one level, okay, it's cool that my mom is helping me understand this, helping me understand that my identity doesn't come from being black, but being a black person as, as an identity comes from somewhere else. That was good news to me because that meant that I wasn't locked into how people saw me, but at the same time she was trying to prevent me from being that same thing. 
So I have an uncommon voice when it comes to this discussion, but I want to add to it, and I want to try to convince you tonight. I almost said this morning, but I want to convince you tonight that the gospel really is the answer to our situation. Because I feel like the the popular voices right now, the people who are talking and adding to this discussion on racial reconciliation aren't really talking about the gospel truly being the answer, maybe on some shallow level, but not as a high level, not as the underpinning, not as the, the top level solution. And so I want to talk to you guys about that this morning. I want to show you how through from the Bible, why and how this really is our future hope and our immediate answer. So I hope you can take this journey with me. If you have, any, if you have a Bible, please open up to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Um, I don't know how, how you guys do it here. Um, you can use a paper Bible. That is, that is okay. Um, but if you have a phone or a Bible app, you can use that. And um, since I can't really hear when you're done swiping across your phone, I'll just wait until I'm done hearing pages ruffle. And then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Lord, who do we have but you? Um, who do we have but you, you being the creator of all things? You create everything out of nothing. And from the beginning, God, you create us with a design and with a purpose, and we fell from that design and purpose. And so who do we have but you to understand who we are, to understand how life ought to be lived except from you? And Lord, you give us your word. You speak to us through your word. And tonight, tonight, would you speak to us through your word? God, would you show yourself would you show your word to be powerful, to really truly be what you say your word is, that, that it changes us, it transforms us, it really informs us. What Us gathering in this room from different background and cultures, God, it is, it, is, it is a work of the gospel, it is a work of your hand in history, God. This is uncommon, but you have done this. And so tonight, would you show yourself, would you show your word to be true? God, would you be with me as I communicate? God, would you, would you help me to speak clearly? God, would you help me to, to not say the things that I, I shouldn't say? And would you help me to say the things that are not here in my notes? But would you be with us tonight, Lord, as we speak? And would you convict us about the things that we ought to be convicted about? God, not to feel guilty, falsely, wrongly, but to truly, I think, I think really feel conviction about the things we need to feel convicted about, Lord. So, so would, you, would you move in that way among us tonight? In your name I pray. Amen. Systemic racism, it exists. And I'm starting off with the assumption that you know what that means given Jordan's message last week, but racism is a present reality. Systemic racism exists. But here's my question. How do you fix it? How do you fix systemic racism? What's your answer to that question? Is a way to fix systemic racism to change the system? Or is it something else? Is it to change laws and regulations or social systems? Let me ask you this way. Can systems really change the way people think, the way people feel, the way that people act with conviction? Can systems really do that? Some believe that. Because that's why we have people in a political sphere. That's why we vote. That's why, that's why we push for policy. Because in some way, we think a system can change things. But what I deposit to you today is that systems affect people. However, they do not create the kind of lasting change that leads people to live with passion. You can force people to do something with a rule, with a law, with a policy, but, but that desire to, to perform for that, to that, is not passion but fear. 
Steve Childers is the founder of an organization called Pathway Learning. Pathway Learning seeks to provide cross-cultural theological training to underserved church planners and leaders around the world. Childers made this amazing statement, and I want you to think about this as I say it. Behind every person's behaviors are their values. Behind every person's values are their beliefs. And behind every person's beliefs is their worldview. Our behaviors are what we do and don't do. Our values are what we say is good and not good, right? So if you don't like spicy food, that's a value, okay? You think it's not good. There's a value behind that. Our beliefs are what we say is true and not true. You would say this is true because, well, that's, that's, a, that's an internal belief you have. You would say this is not true because that's an internal belief that you, that you have. And our worldview... Our worldview answers the questions of our beginnings. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a thought about where we come from and what our purpose is. A worldview answers the questions of the problems of evil. What is evil and where does it come from? Everybody has an answer to that. Worldview answers the questions of issues of hope. What is my hope? And worldview answers the questions about our future. What's my future? What's your future? Where are you headed? What's your trajectory? That's a worldview question. Steve Childress says that for there to be any lasting change, any complete change in a person, you can't stop at the behavior level. You just can't stop at the surface. You've got to go deeper. There has to be transformation. There's got to be transformation from the inside out. You have to get deeper than the behaviors of a person. To have transformation, you actually have to get to the core of a person. You actually have to dive deep through a person's behaviors. You have to go through a person's values You have to go through a person's beliefs. You have to get to the core of every single person into their worldview. The book of Ephesians, it talks about this kind of transformation in a very tangible way because race isn't just an issue for us in our culture today. It's not just something we're we're uniquely experiencing on our own. Race was also an issue back in the time the letter to the Ephesians Maybe you know this already, but Ephesians was written by a man named Paul. His, his whole world was changed and transformed. Jesus transformed the way that he saw all of life. He saw God. And what was unique about Paul is that Paul was specifically called by Jesus to a group of people, ethnic people called Gentiles, which was everybody. There's not one person in this room who's not a Gentile, unless you're a Jew. If you're a Jew, then you're not a Gentile. But if you're not a Jew, every one of us in this room as a Gentile. A Gentile was someone who was, a part, who was not a part of God's people. They were considered pagan. A pagan, historically, was someone who was not a worshiper of the God of Israel. This was before Jesus stepped into the picture. So what's interesting about the word Gentile, catch this really quick, is that it comes from the same Greek word that ethnicity comes from. I don't like to, to flash smarts because I'm really not smart, but that word is ethnos. The same root the ethnicity comes from. So when Paul uses the word Gentile, he's not just referring to people who did not worship the God of Israel, but he's actually referring to the people who come from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultures, different nations. This is a broad definition of Gentile. He's referring to people who would, cons- who would be considered of different race. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about people with different skin color. People who eat different foods, who speak different languages, who, who dance differently, who listen to different music, different ethnic backgrounds. 
So Paul has a different answer for us, I think, to how to deal with systemic racism because what Paul is saying in this passage, it actually gets to the core of us. He wants the Ephesian people to understand that the vertical gospel that you and I experience should be expressed as a horizontal gospel as well. Did you catch that? The vertical gospel we experience, this experience that we have between us and God should be a horizontal gospel that we express. It shouldn't just stop here. Man, our... It should go this way. So to understand how the gospel really is a hope to combat systemic racism, I think we have to understand personally what, what has happened to us, who we are, who, who we were before Jesus and what we are now because of Jesus. And so it, it starts in our passage in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I want you to catch something really quick. Look at what's happening here in this verse. Paul says the word, therefore. And so he's, he's, he's coming off of heels of talking about what the gospel has done for you on a very vertical level. Back in verses 1 through 3, if you want to look really quick, he describes their spiritual condition as dead. Walking in sinful, self-centered passions. And it was their main influence. They were ruled by their sinful, self-centered passions. He calls them sons of disobedience. What a name, huh? Children of wrath. Look at that title. And he says, all of mankind is like this. Everybody, without Jesus' saving work in their lives, is making their decisions based on sinful, self-centered passions that resembles Satan's heart and Satan's attitude. So if you're not ruled by Christ, if your main influence isn't Christ, there's only one way to go. There's only one other master. It's Satan himself who leads you to be selfish and self-centered, making decisions based on what suits you. And based on what Paul is saying, there is nothing in us that pleased God. Everybody in this room is in that place, has been in that place, or struggles not to be in that place. But then he describes what God did to change them in verses 4 through 5. See, in verse 3, Paul says they were children of wrath. Their rebellious, sinful hearts deserve to be met with God's punishment. Without Jesus, you and I are destined for wrath. Verses 4 through 5 says, While that was your trajectory, while that was my trajectory, while that was our trajectory, we're going this way, but God showed us mercy. When our lives were like the walking dead, he made us alive. He gave us a life-beating heart that loves him. We went from not loving him to loving him. He made us alive. He gave us life. He rescued us from our sins and his wrath. He gave us a new identity, a new identity that starts from here and that goes outwards. We went from foe to friend. You went from an orphan to a son and daughter of God because God did that. And verses 6 through 10 tell us why. He did this so that we could experience the immeasurable riches of God's undeserved love. He didn't just save you because he wanted to give you a flourishing, pleasing life. He didn't save you because he thought you were awesome. He didn't save you because he thought your hair was slick. He didn't save you because he thought your glasses were awesome. He didn't save you because he thought you were popular. He, he saved you because of his mercy. 
He wants us, he wants you in this room to experience his immeasurable riches so that as you experience his immeasurable riches and his grace, the people looking at you might see what his love is like towards you if your faith is in Christ. See what's happening? You are a display. Your display and your clothes are the gospel. You're a mannequin and his love and mercy is clothing you. And as he clothes you, people are looking at the beauty that the gospel is because of his work in you. So through your experience of salvation, through your experience of relationship with God, people will see God as a merciful and a gracious God. So Paul turns a quarter here in verses 11 through 12, and he gets really tangible. Okay? He gets really horizontal. Paul wants them to see that this isn't just a spiritual experience. It changes our physical experience. So this, this leaves our prayer closet, and it goes out to our daily life. Everything Paul is saying in verses 11 through 12 is reminding these Gentile believers that they were outsiders. They were Gentiles. They were uncircumcised. They were aliens and strangers. To be a Gentile meant that you were not a part of God's people. Circumcision marked you as a part of God's people. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents. To be called uncircumcision, to be called the uncircumcision was derogatory language. The equivalent would have been, would have been to call a black person the N-word. So if I said to you, you're the uncircumcision, it would have been the, the equivalent to the racial slander of the N-word to you if you're black. And so it not only emphasized that you were non-Jewish, but it was rubbing it in your face. You were less than, you were low life compared to the Jews. To be a part of God's people not only meant that you had this special place as a, being a part of God's people, but you were a part of a nation that no one else was a part of. God specifically dwelt his presence among these people of Israel, and anybody not a part of this did not get to have that closeness. And so what Paul is saying here when he says alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, he's referring to this. Being in covenant relationship with God meant that God promised to protect you and provide for you daily. Who wouldn't want that? Commonwealth meant that you had access to all the benefits of being a part of God's people. God's kingdom, the nation of Israel, and anybody who was not a Jew did not have access to that. And just a reminder, that was us. That was us. That was everybody. So before Jesus stepped into the scene, that was you and me to be alienated and strangers. To, this meant that you were without hope and without God in the world. If we were not a part of the people of Israel, we had no hope. We were destined for the sword. We were destined for wrath. That was our trajectory without Christ. And so I hope, I hope you catch what's being said here, in the, just in these two verses. Are you feeling this? Are you feeling the alienation, the rejection that the Gentiles in these verses might have felt? The Jews, as an ethnic people, had a promise from God that they would be his people forever. And as long as they trusted and depended on him, he would save them, protect them. And as an ethnic Gentile, you were an outsider, would not have been able to access God. My friends, you, like the Ephesian Gentiles in this passage, were without hope. Because your main issue, your main issue tonight is just like verses 1 through 3 tells you. You're spiritually separated in your relationship with God. That's your main issue. That's my main issue. You're spiritually dead. You're unable to please God no matter what you do. No matter what, no matter how, how much communion you take, no matter how many Sunday night services you come to, you'll, you're unable to please God just by that alone. 
you live as a disobedient son because you were ruled by your sinful passions. Your only destination was the wrath of God. And that, that was right. That was fair because that's the price of sin. So to be in this position was to was just the common experience as Gentile people. It's what it meant to be non-Jewish. You and I are outsiders, and in effect, as strangers and aliens, we, f- we felt our separation from God. I don't know about you, when I look at these verses, when I take my eyes off of Christ, I feel, I feel what that separation would have been like. So in a spiritual way, I think everybody in this room can know and we can experience what it's like to systematically lack certain privileges. So I love this passage because I think it reminds every single person. It reminds me that my systemic issue is sin. Your systemic issue is sin. I think we could just stop the sermon right now and know what the issue is. Our systemic issue is sin. The reason why someone would treat others like they are outsiders is because they too feel like outsiders. And where does that come from? They'll do whatever they can to make themselves an insider. I'm sure you guys remember high school, right? Everybody's fighting for position. Everybody's jockeying to be important. It's, it's conniving. It's like war. Where do you think that comes from? Since you are separated from God because of your sins, you will treat other people like you are separated from God. If you're not experiencing unity that comes from God, then, then people around you will not experience the kind of unity that only comes from God. If you're not experiencing peace, reconciliation with God, other people around you will not experience peace and reconciliation. The unity that you have and display will be false at best. You think it will be unity, but it's really just self-seeking. So if you're Christian in this room, if Jesus is your confidence in this room, then that's what you were. You've got to feel that. I've got to remember that. You've got to remember that. That's what he says. Therefore, remember that at one time in the past, you were this. And if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not following Christ, if your confidence isn't in Jesus this morning, then I'm sad to say that that's what you are now. I don't, I don't hope that for you. I, I would hope that you would come to Christ. Maybe at the end of this sermon, you might come to Christ and see that he's brought you near. But this, feel, this seems heavy. I mean, be, honestly, the atmosphere in this room, I just feel like I just ruined your day. It's heavy in here. But there is good news. There's good news. The first thing Paul emphasizes, though, is what you were. We've got to feel that. If we have any hope to, to deal with systemic racism, we've got to remember that there is a systemic issue that we're all facing. The second thing he emphasizes is in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you, were, you once were far, far off, but now, but now you've been brought near through Jesus. You've been brought near by Jesus. Look at the language here Paul uses. He's not just saying, because of Jesus, you're allowed in. He's not just saying, hey, the door is open. He is saying that Jesus actively brought you near. All of us, we were once aliens and strangers, have been brought near. You were pursued. 
you were chased after. You were sought after. When you were not looking at Christ, he looked at you and pursued you. You did nothing. God did everything. And Jesus goes on a rescue mission, and he saves the stranger. He saves the enemy. He, sa- he saves the alien. He saves the rebel. He saves a person who wants nothing to do with him at first because Jesus has this wooing kind of nature about him. He goes on a rescue mission. He brings you near. And how does he do it? It says, by his blood. Look, look right there. It says, by the blood of cross, by Jesus' death for you, it was at his ex- expense. It was through his pain. It was through his suffering. Do you guys know what it took for Christ to bring you near to the Father? Do you understand what it took for him to bring you near? If you were going to be brought near into loving relationship with God, then you had sin that had to be dealt with. The only way that this was going to be possible is if God's wrath was absorbed somehow, like a sponge. Someone had to eat that up. And it was either you or Jesus, and it was Jesus. It was either you and, or Jesus, and Jesus said, me. So if you feel like God doesn't understand you, just remember that he was misunderstood just like you. If you feel like Jesus doesn't understand the suffering that you're going through, understand that he faced a suffering to a degree that totally destroys the daily experience of suffering that you might have. I mean, he took the pain and suffering and wrath of God, of not just you, but of all those who would put their faith in him. That's a lot of wrath. I mean, I think in translation, that's a lot of butt whoopings. That's got to be painful. To be seen at one point as an obedient son and all of a sudden be seen as a criminal for the first time would have hurt. I think would have hurt. John 1.11 says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. God in the flesh came to his own people They experienced what he was like in the past. It was written all over their history books. And then all of a sudden they had God amnesia when they saw him. He suffered more horribly than you suffered. He knows what your suffering feels like. He can relate to you. And he did it willingly. You did not beat him into submission. You would would lose in an arm wrestling match. He did it willingly. He took your status as rebellious son rebellious daughter. He took it in the grave and he gave you his status as obedient son. So now, as long as the father looks at Jesus on your behalf, you're considered obedient even though you're a jacked up sinner. That's crazy. That means when you sin, maybe tonight. That means when you sin, maybe tomorrow. That means when you when you lust, when you have hate in your heart, when you're tempted to lie, when you're tempted to drop kick somebody because they cut you off. He sees you as an obedient son. That's the good news of the gospel. You were far off, but Jesus brings you near. And Paul helps us understand that by contrasting it with what you were. But Jesus did more than just bring you near. Look at verses 14 through 18. And this is our largest chunk. This is where we'll spend the most time. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Jesus is your peace now. 
That's what, that's what he's saying. Jesus is your peace right now. And he didn't just put you at good terms with God. He, he was resurrected from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father constantly as a reminder of the peace that you and God have. And that's not all. The message of the gospel is not just peace between you and God. Look what it says in verse 16. There's peace between all believers of all ethnic backgrounds. This peace with God that you have, this vertical peace that you have, means that there's not only hope, but there's a reality that that reconciliation should exist among you. So if you've got beef, you need to ground that beef. That's cheesy, I'm sorry. But if there's beef, you've got to squash that, man. Because there's, there's vertical reconciliation. It should be horizontal reconciliation. So you have to remember what Paul is saying here. You have to remember that he's talking about two ethnic backgrounds. There's two ethnic differences that you were once separated just because you were not a Jew. And so Paul is saying that Gentiles are no longer separated from God simply because of ethnic differences. Paul is saying that's not the case anymore. Jesus has brought two categorically different people, not just not just people who look different, people who experience life differently, and he's brought them together, and he's made them one. For the Jew, it was either Jew or non-Jew. Out of two different people groups, he makes them one. So now it's neither Jew or no Jew. So Jesus broke the wall of hostility. The law and the covenants that separated Jews and Gentiles, Jesus crushed. And by his blood, he made a new law and a new covenant. He made a new Peace. So when Jesus' body was crushed for you, he was crushing hostility. And so by saying in verse 15, Jesus creates in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, Paul is saying that people of different ethnic backgrounds are united through Jesus. By faith in Christ, ethnicity, race no longer becomes an issue of difference. And I, and I, I should say, should no longer be an issue of difference, but that's what our world is facing today. That's what our, our current nation is facing today. And he continues on in verse 16 by saying, and Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is saying, G- Jesus, he reconciles both Jew and Gentile to God together equally at the same time by the cross. So just as an analogy really quick, as one person, if we're both reconciled, if two people are both reconciled to God, man, they meet each other in the middle. There's no way the hostility should exist. Because if we're reconciled to God together equally, not, not staggered, this guy's not JV and this guy's varsity, no, equally united to God in Christ. So when Jesus saves you, he doesn't just restore you to God, he restores you to other people. When Jesus transforms the way you see God, he transforms the way you see other people. So you not only move towards God, but as you move towards God, you move towards other people. If you're experiencing vertical peace, if you're experiencing vertical reconciliation, if you're experiencing vertical reconciliation, then you should be expressing the same kind of peace that you receive from God. The kind of experience that you're receiving from God should be expressed towards other people. So this is why the gospel is the hope to deal with systemic racism. Because policies, laws, regulations, and social systems can't do this. It can't. It can't create this kind of peace that the gospel creates. If you've experienced this kind of reconciliation with God, you weren't lawed into that. 
Just, just, just look at the Old Testament. They tried to live by the law, and they just couldn't cut it. There's nothing but animosity and, and backbiting. But through Christ, through the death of one man, we can experience this. So just can you imagine what it would look like if every single person in our nation experienced this kind of peace, this kind of reconciliation? Can you imagine what kind of policies would be made by redeemed people? If every person was redeemed, man, what kind of policies would be written? I think things would be accounted for that we're just, we just wouldn't think about. I think God through his spirit would help us account for things that we just don't normally see because now we're looking with a new lens that is through Christ. So I'm not saying that our social systems don't need to be changed. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't mess with that. I am saying mess with that. But I'm also saying that only changing social systems is just not holistic enough. I'm saying that you can't policy, you can't regulate people, you can't law people into lasting peace. Just look back at our history. We've been trying to do this since the dawn of time. Am I right? I think if we could do this, we would have figured it out already. But we haven't. We haven't. So don't tell me we just have to figure this out. Don't, don't tell me we're just waiting for someone smart enough to figure this out. Because if you look at Twitter, if you look at social media, if you look at the news, there's this, there's this twinkle of skepticism and hopelessness in everyone's eye. There's this twinkle of a sense of hopelessness that we just don't know what the answer is. And all we can do is fight. All we can do is judge the other. All we can do is offer no peace. So let me level with you for a second. I know that there's some shoddy Christians out there. <laughs> there are people who who have experienced the vertical gospel but aren't expressing it in their, in their horizontal life. But I just want to say to you, the reason why that's true is because they're not taking what they're experiencing with Christ and expressing it horizontally. The reason why we're not experiencing this kind of reality in our everyday life is because we're not taking the gospel and internalizing it. We're not taking it from our heads to our hearts and taking it to our hands and our feet. And we just need Christ to help us with that. We just need to please. So maybe one of the most practical steps is to just get on our knees for a long period of time and just pray and ask the Lord to make that possible because I can't tell you to just do this. I need the Holy Spirit to work in you to do this. I understand as a preacher right now, all I, can, all I can do is just say this, but I am totally powerless to change you. And so let me just say this. It says, he came and preached peace. So it's, at one point, there was no, he, Jesus was preaching peace to people who did not have peace. And so Jesus did that. And I think in, in, in many ways, we can go and preach peace. I think one of the things that we can practically do is that we can take the gospel we're experiencing and express it in a very horizontal way. And so let me just let me give you a couple examples and then I'll cut it short here. So when I was in, when I was in college, there's a man named Robert Houghton. He discipled me. He brought me into his home. He taught me how to share the gospel. He let me eat his food, which is a pricey thing for a college student, and he let me chill there. He was a white guy. There's a guy named Robert or Stephen Robert. He bought me a Jeep, paid for my tags. And he wouldn't let me offer money because he said he wanted me to have a reminder of the gospel every time I drove that car. He was a white guy. 
There's a guy named Joshua Barda sitting in this room right now. I knew him back in 2009. I met him as a college student, and he took me into his home. He fed me food. He let me ask him questions about the Christian life. He was a white guy. Why do I say that? Because when those three guys did that for me, they demonstrated something very important to me as a black guy. They showed me that the gospel is true in everyday life. And so look, look, at, verse, look at verse 19. It says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together. So because of Christ, we're a temple. We're a holy temple. Christ is holding us together, built on the teachings of the prophets and the apostles. Jesus holds us together, and where we are, Jesus is. And so maybe another practical step. I don't know if you have black friends, but if you do, invite them in. Maybe, maybe that's not the step. Maybe you need to cross boundaries. Maybe you need to go to Cesar Chavez, and that place is dangerous. And maybe you just need to cross boundaries. Maybe you need to walk towards them. It might cost you your life. But remember, it cost Christ his life. But maybe you just need to cross boundaries. What does it look like for you to respond the way Christ did to you? I'm preaching because there are people of ethnic different backgrounds who cross boundaries and taught me how to do what I'm doing today. So what if, what if there's just more of that? What if, what if we just did that? I think the answer to our systemic issue is to deal with our systemic sin issue, and that's through Christ. And so my commission to you guys tonight is, is just to consider what is God calling you to do? Because the vertical gospel we experience should be a horizontal, horizontal gospel we express. And, and there's no program you can, you, can, you can use to help you figure out what to do. You just have to go to Christ and get on your knees and beg and plead, Lord, what do we do? What do we do? How, do? how do we deal with this? Lord, is there stuff in me that I need to deal with? Would you help me know what to do after that? So my commission to you is, how can you express the gospel in your, in your horizontal life? Let's pray. Lord, just simply, Lord, we need you to move. Lord, we need your help. We need your power to work in us. We need you to change us. Lord, thank you so much for, for saving us, for, for making known to us our condition, for making known that we need you, Jesus, and, and, for, and for bringing us at peace with you. But Lord, we just need your help. We need your help to cross boundaries. And so my hope tonight, Lord, is that, um, that you would help people to look not on, not on their, their lack of or, or their past with, with guilt, but Lord, that they would see it with hope and know that you can help them walk towards towards you and towards other people with grace. And so help us to do that. In your name I pray, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.